Good morning, church. Welcome to worship this morning. We're so glad that you're here, that you've joined us. Let's stand together. Let's sing this old hymn, Faith is the Victory. Let's sing that truth together. Encamped along the hills of light, ye Christian soldiers rise, and past the battle ere the night shall veil the glowing skies. Against the foes in veils below, let all our strength be hurled, the faith by which they hardly know that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory, oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. His banner over us is love, our sword, the word of God. We tread the road, the saints above, with shouts of triumph trod. By faith they, like a whirlwind's breath, swept on over every field. The faith by which they conquered death is still our shining shield. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory, oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. To him who overcomes the foe, white raiment shall be given. Before the angels he shall know his name best in heaven. Then onward from the hills of light, our hearts with love aflame will vanquish all the hosts of night in Jesus' conquering name. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me and I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. 
about the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He saw me and bond me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Thank you. You can be seated. Good morning. Happy New Year again. It's good to see everybody. I, I know the last few Sundays that we gathered have occurred on holidays, and so it's nice to, to get those behind us and return to somewhat of a regular routine. Glad to have many of you back who were traveling and having the chance to go visit with families over the holidays. Hope you had an enjoyable experience, an enjoyable time, but it's good to have you back here. And uh, another word of welcome, I guess, to any guests or any visitors that are here with us this morning. We're really glad that you chose University Baptist as a place to worship this morning. Uh, what we would love for you to do is if you grabbed a worship guide on your way in, uh, on the inside cover there, there's a right-hand section that you could fill out and leave some details, some information that allows us to follow up with you and make sure that we're welcoming you appropriately, that we're answering any questions that you have. And so if you're a guest, you can fill that out, leave it in the offering tray as it passes around a little bit later, and we'd really appreciate that. Now, a couple of things that I want to say as we begin worship today is a reminder that we've started a new series. Uh, that, that last Sunday, we, we talked extensively about Psalm 98 and what does it mean to sing to the Lord a new song. We talked about that in this Christian experience, we have this interesting dynamic of being able to remember what God has done, to reflect on what God has done, but also to anticipate that he is doing new things, that there's power when he creates new opportunities and new experiences. So we looked at this in three different lenses. We, we talked about how the American church, it's time for the American church to sing a new song, to reinvent herself in some capacity. That we as a congregation want to begin to sing a new song as we start a new journey and a new season together. And that all of that is really achieved with what goes on within our own hearts and our own souls and our own minds. We want God to ignite something new within us. Now, a couple of things that we discussed last week that I want to remind you of this morning is that in order for us to do that, we are going to be known as a church that knows how to pray. That is going to be a central discipline that we try to cultivate as a church family. So a couple of things that I want you to anticipate. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to have more direct challenges for you as individuals. Ways that we're going to ask you to intentionally pray and fast on a regular basis throughout the month. And so those details will be coming. But one thing that I would point out to you is that if you could go ahead and mark down Wednesday, January 25th. In addition to having individual challenges to prayer, we're going to make sure that we create opportunities for us to come and pray together as a church family. So from 6 to 6.30, we're going to convene in Watson Chapel, and I'm going to ask all of us that can be here to come, and we're going to begin to not just pray individually, but pray corporately for God to do a new thing within us. So I'm excited about that. Now, all of that was serving as an introduction to this series that we've started and that we're going to continue this morning which was an opportunity for us to work through these key convictions that the Lord has laid on my heart 
that I hope will begin to shape our vision and our future as we move forward. And, and a couple of disclaimers about that. My tendency is to pick a scripture, pick a book of the Bible, and just work through it. And just kind of work through it systematically and let the text drive the conversation as opposed to the conversation driving the text. But for these next few months, it's going to be much more topical in nature. And we're going to work through different topics that I hope serve as, as a foundation for this vision, this new song that we're trying to create. So today, the first topic is what does it mean to be centered on the gospel? What I want us to see is that our church is absolutely going to be gospel-centered in everything that we do. So as we prepare for worship, here's what I would tell you. Is that perhaps you've come here today, and, and by some chance, you, you've really gone through most of your life without the ability to encounter power of the gospel. And this will be new for you today. And I want you to know that the gospel demands a response. If it's something that you're going to hear for the first time, you must respond to it. But at the same time, maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've heard this gospel message a hundred times, if not a thousand. And it's familiar to you. Let me, let me remind you this morning, the gospel demands a response. You've heard it for the first time or 500 times. We must respond to it. My hope is that as we approach the text this morning, we are going to see that the church has a central message, right, that we must never grow silent, but that we must always proclaim and make our central message the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's pray for the Spirit to bless us and ignite that response within us this morning. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you for this opportunity to come and be in your midst, Father, to be awakened once again of this new song and the things that you want to do in our lives. I pray that your Spirit would be here in fullness, or that you would demonstrate your presence to all of us this morning as we seek to worship you. Bless our time together. and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the children forward as we have a word from Miss Caroline. The rest of you, why don't you stand up, shake hands, and greet each other this morning. Sing, 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 and make music with the heavens. We will sing, sing, sing. Grateful that you hear us when we shout your praise. Lift high the name of Jesus. Sing, what's not to love? What's not to love about you? Heaven and earth adore you. Kings and kingdoms bow down. Son of God, you are the one. You are the one we're living for. 
love that frees us. You are the light that leads us like a fire burning. Son of God, you are the one. You are the one we're living for. We will sing, sing, sing and make music with the heavens. We will sing, sing, sing. Grateful that you hear us when we shout your praise. Live high the name of Jesus. You can be seated. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Friends, I know we live in Fort Worth and not in Arlington, but there is a sports team in Arlington that I adore. There's two that I like, but there's one that I adore, and that team plays baseball. Now, can you guys think of a baseball team that might play around here? What do you think, Hadley? The Texas Rangers. Have any of you guys ever heard of the Texas Rangers? You went to a game? You did too. You too. Oh my goodness. You know what? I think I'm surrounded by a lot of friends that like Texas Rangers. Now, I think that I heard that they are going to get a new stadium. And this stadium is going to have a dome over the top. So it's going to be super fancy schmancy. But you want to know what I like and what I think is the coolest? Whenever those guys get up there, right? The really big ones, the really strong ones, the ones that you go, oh yeah. Pitcher will throw the ball. It's coming at him. 90, maybe 100 miles an hour. And, you know, I totally can't even see the ball. But the batter gets back there. And he goes. And what sound happens whenever the baseball hits the bat? Right? That's exactly right. There's a big push. A bang, man. And you know what? Whenever that happens... That ball that was going maybe 90 or 100 miles an hour, it starts going a different direction, and it starts going a whole lot faster. You know what? When I think about our faith and what happens whenever we become a Christian, that same thing happens with us. We're like that baseball, right? We're zooming along one direction, and all of a sudden we come in contact with Jesus Christ, and he changes everything for us. And he changes our future and where we're going and everything we look forward to. And we go a different direction. And we're going even faster. And we're going the way that God wants us to go. Now, I have a friend that's going to read a verse for us. And it reminds us of the hope that we have. So I want you to read that for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's our perfect reminder. God has this amazing plan for us that he has always had before time ever started that we would be able to have that special relationship with him, that we would be able to live for eternity, but most off that every single day, every single moment, we would be able to walk with him and we would know that hope, that we would be that baseball flying through the air, that one day we would make the home run. Because we're going to follow through on what God has for us. Because it's not just about a little time. It's not just about one decision. It changes our whole life. 
Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would unleash within us an excitement about what you have for us as individuals. Father, what you have for each one of these children here, that when they make that decision to follow through, to make you the best friend for their whole life, to make you their boss, the leader, the one, the one that makes all their choices, that they would know that they are unleashed with your strength and with your might and with your direction. Father, empower us, empower these children, empower this church that we would be exactly who you want us to be, loving you, praising you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Let's stand together and sing. they wept the morning sun was dead the savior of the world was fallen his body on the cross his blood poured out for us the power of every curse upon him Final breath he gave as heaven looked away. The Son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave, the war on death was waged. The power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated forever. He is glorified forever. to shake the stone was rolled away his perfect love could not be overcome now death where is your sting our resurrected king has rendered you defeated forever he is glorified We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, 
we sing hallelujah the lamb is overcome we sing hallelujah we sing hallelujah we sing hallelujah the lamb is overcome we sing hallelujah we sing hallelujah we sing hallelujah the lamb is overcome forever he is glorified forever he is lifted high forever he is risen he is alive he is alive forever he is glorified forever he is lifted high forever he is risen he is alive he is alive all God's people said amen you may be seated amen Thank you guys for leading us in worship. So if you were to um, look in the dictionary and, and try to find a definition for communication, uh, you, you'd probably some, find something along the lines of the, the imparting or the interchanging of thoughts, opinions, information through speech, writing, or signs. Something along those lines. That's more or less the definition of communication. That definition in and of itself kind of reminds us that communication is complex, right? It's multifaceted. Uh, we have verbal communication, nonverbal communication, all these different tools that we have at our disposal to convey meaning. And so it's no wonder that we have that phrase, there's an art to communication. And it begins even in infancy, right? All the things that we have to go through life to try to cultivate how it is that we communicate, it starts when we're young children, and our parents come to us and they begin to teach us vocabulary, teach us words. They lean over us and they say, dada, mama, right? And we begin to realize that just by the simple arranging of sounds, we can convey meaning. And, and so we begin to learn vocabulary. Now you would think that vocabulary is fixed, right? That there's a certain number of terms that we begin to utilize and that we can use at our disposal. But even vocabulary is complex. Even vocabulary evolves. There's evidence to this by just the fact that every year we have new words added to the dictionary, right? I was, I was researching this this past week to figure out what those words were, thinking that I would discover seven or eight words that were added to our, our language, to the dictionary. You know how many words were added this past year? 1,200 words. I, that blew my mind. 1,200 words were added to our dictionary. And, and there were some pretty funny ones in there, or some decent ones, I guess, like, like bracketology. I was a fan of that one. That's the idea of studying the March Madness bracket, okay, for any basketball fans that are out there. Uh, YOLO was added to the dictionary. If you don't know what the definition of YOLO is, you need to go look it up because, after all, you only live once, right? Um, if it, the America was another one, not America, but America. It's the sarcastic term to reference any sort of American stereotype. I immediately think of the SNL skits with George W. Bush, America. Uh, and so all these words are added showing us that the communication evolves, vocabulary evolves. And so I was thinking about even just not the words that we use, but the methods we use to communicate and how those have changed so significantly just in my lifetime alone. 
And, and so I was thinking about all these different tools that we have to communicate. Let's take phones, for example, and the way that phones have kind of progressed. So when I was growing up, I actually remember a day when I was younger when, when phones were stationary. That meant they were actually in one spot in your house. They were fixed to the wall, and there was a cord attached to them. So if you were going to be on the phone, you had to be in that one location. Now, I didn't really look on this era of phone usage with a whole lot of fond memories, primarily because I grew up in a house with an older sister. And, and when this era was prevalent, I, you know, I was younger, so I had a high-pitched voice, and my voice hadn't developed yet. And so the phone would ring, and I'd be so excited to talk to somebody and see who had called. And I'd run to the phone, and I'd pick it up, and I'd answer, and I'd say, hello. And almost every single time, the person on the other end of the phone would say, oh, hi, Stephanie, how are you doing? Now, a younger brother rarely wants to be confused for his older sister. And I would say, no, this is Jeremiah. And the caller would always respond and say, oh, I'm sorry, you sound just like your sister. (laughs) Again, not the impression I'm trying to make on people. And so I didn't really look on that era very fondly. But thankfully, it didn't last long. Uh, Mobility starts to be introduced to our phones, not, not with cell phones, but the mobile phone, right? The, the portable phone, cordless phones, right? That was a big deal. You can now use your phone anywhere in the house, walk anywhere and be on the phone. Of course, that was a little bit of a, a false advertising because if you got too far away from the base, static would come in and you'd be walking around your house going, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? It's funny how some things never really change, correct? And, and so you had portability. And now all of this was the era of my childhood, which meant that in addition to phones, I had to figure out how to leave notes, uh, note leaving for my parents was a must. Okay, if I was going to go do something with my friends and, and go do anything when, when my parents weren't home, it was very clear. There better be a note left behind. If there was no note left behind explaining to my whereabouts, there would be problems. There would be issues that I would have to resolve when I got home. And it wasn't just leaving a note. The note had to be accurate. Right? I actually had to include certain elements, where I was going, how long I would be there, and who I would be with. And, and so my friends and I were always frustrated by those limitations, but we knew we had to adhere to them, but we'd always try to press the envelope a little bit. I, I remember one of my buddies, we were all going out to, to hang out, and we are like, Adam, you need to leave a note. And so Adam's note was very simple. He just said, gone somewhere, be back sometime. I don't think his parents responded very kindly to that note either. But that was really the bulk of my childhood. And all of that changed with the rise of the cell phone. Now, when the cell phone first burst onto the scene, There wasn't a whole lot of hype that went with it, okay? Because those first cell phones, they weren't fitting in your pocket, all right? My my stepfather was a pediatrician, and so his office, his practice, purchased one of these first cell phones. That thing came home in a briefcase, okay? I mean, this thing was this big blag, and if you got that thing out of the bag, it was like holding a size 15 shoe next to your ear. I mean, it was huge, okay? And, And so it took us a while to get hyped up about cell phones, but probably around my junior or senior year in high school, they became pretty prolific, and that's when I had my first cell phone. Shocking, I know, youth, right? I had to wait till I was a senior. It's amazing. And yet that's when cell phones really kind of altered how we communicate with each other. I remember being in college, and, and all these different things started to emerge, and I always struggled to anticipate just the significance of them, like texting. I, I remember getting text messages in college initially and going, I don't get it. Like, you're holding your phone. You want to say something to me? Just call me. You don't have to send a message. Like, I don't like having to type five, four different times just to get to the next letter. You know, just give me a phone call. Not realizing that texting would become so prolific in how we communicate. And then, of course, there was the rise of the smartphone. Here I am at this point in uh, seminary, and I'm living in California. And, of course, there's all this hype about the first iPhone, what it's going to bring. 
and all this enthusiasm. My buddies asked me, so are you going to get one? Are you going to get a new iPhone? And again, I just couldn't anticipate the significance. And I was like, I don't really get it. I don't really see myself buying one. I mean, let's, what's the big deal? I've got an iPod so I can listen to music. I've got a laptop. I can get on the computer and get online. I've got a phone so I can call people. Why do I care if they're all in one device? I don't see what the big deal is. Not really realizing that it would drastically alter how we communicate with each other. And it wasn't just the technology, right? I mean, it was the rise of social media simultaneous to it. And now all of a sudden we have these multiple forums that we can communicate with each other. We can build these online profiles and we can share messages and images and communicate through the number of likes and comments and all these different things that communicate these messages, these thoughts, these opinions and information in in this world. So no wonder communication is complex. It's difficult. There, There are messages that can be distorted, misunderstood. It can become challenging. And so it is an art that we need to master. That's true for us as individuals. Much more so is it true for us as a church. What is the art of communication churches? It's our message. It's the one thing that we need to cling to. How do we make sure that that message doesn't get distorted or confused? What we're going to look at this morning is a reminder that our central message as the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we consider how that message has been entrusted to us and our methodology to communicating it, what we need to see is that we always have something to say. We must never grow silent. We must hold fast to this gospel and let it be the essence of all that we declare when we function as a church. So as we begin this discussion today, let us just pray for the Spirit to awaken us to the importance of the gospel. Bow your heads. Let's pray together. Father, come in power. More than we need a message, more than we need a sermon, more than we just need to sing songs, we need you. Father, this is the message that has changed lives for thousands of years. It's the message you've entrusted to church. Let's handle it faithfully this morning. Let us hear it anew, our hearts and our minds. Glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in order to have this discussion on what does it mean for the church to be centered on the gospel, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And let me just say a quick word about the context of this letter, that that when you begin to see all the different references that Paul has to this church in Corinth, and you see all the different times that that it's mentioned in the scriptures, most scholars would suggest that we probably can assume that Paul wrote up to maybe four letters to this church. At least they only have two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But in addition to that, uh, he had multiple visits to this church. There, there was a pretty high degree of familiarity with the church in Corinth. And so when we open up 1 Corinthians, what we see is that some questions had been presented to Paul. Right? There were some issues that had emerged, and he's trying to address some of these things. And, and you try to read through this letter, and you'll see all these different topics come to fruition. Discussions on divisions and quarreling, lawsuits among believers, questions on sexual immorality, Questions on marriage, the Lord's Supper, orderly worship, the resurrection, spiritual gifts. There are so many issues that Paul's trying to address with this church. On one hand, it's comforting, right? That even from the beginning of time, churches have always had their questions. They've always had their issues. In this multifaceted approach, right here in the beginning of chapter 15, we have this break. This moment where Paul says, now, in the midst of all of that, let me remind you of what's the most important. Let me remind you what all this is for. This is about the gospel. 
So we get this wonderful reminder of the power of the gospel when we turn to chapter 15. So let's see how Paul reminds us of this power in this letter. Starting in chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, So whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. This is what you believed. Amen. Amen. So I love this passage for a lot of different reasons. It helps us begin this conversation of what does it mean to be centered on the gospel. And so when we have this term, the gospel, the simple definition is good news. Correct? Now, even that definition, though, begs the question, news of what? What news are we talking about? Well, if you consult the entirety of the scriptures, what you see is that God has always been anticipating a revelation to his people that he was going to bring them back into a relationship with himself, that he was going to restore his kingdom. And so the people of God had been anticipating all of their existence for thousands of years of how this would take place. Who would this person be that would usher in this kingdom? Who would be this Messiah, this Christ figure, this Savior? And so what we have here in the gospel is the revelation of the messianic secret. It's the moment where all of those questions begin to be answered. And that we see that Jesus is the content and the proclamation of this good news. That we no longer have to wonder who that Messiah will be. It is Jesus himself. Paul is reminding us of this good news. And he does it in a couple of ways. First thing that I want to bring to our attention that we kind of see in this passage of this succinct description of the gospel is, is a few things that kind of set the tone. It says, this is of first importance, right? And this is according to the scriptures. It's a moment here where Paul is not just saying, hey, this was the first thing that I mentioned as if it was some sort of chronological order. He's saying, this is more important than anything else we're discussing, All these other issues that we've brought up, all these other questions, let me remind you that the most important thing is this gospel. You must be centered on this. And this gospel was accordance to the scriptures. It was God's plan. It wasn't an alternative. It wasn't plan B. It was what he was designing to do from the very beginning. So what was that? How did he achieve it in Jesus Christ? He starts with the simple phrase, Christ died for our sins and was buried. This is where the gospel begins. I want us to be reminded of this gospel this morning. And so when we see that phrase, where does it take us? What I would suggest is that the first thing that the gospel does is it takes us to a reminder that there's a problem. There's a problem that needs to be addressed. He uses this description, he uses this word sin. That we have this problem of sin in life. That's kind of a churchy word, isn't it? We don't typically go about our normal day using the word sin right? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to sin against you. We don't talk that way. What do you hear? So I'm curious, what 
comes to mind when you hear the word sin? What do you think of? A lot of times I feel like we reduce it to a simpler understanding of the mistakes we make, right? that, that we, we can make bad decisions, we can make choices from time to time, and so therefore we are sinful. Those would be accurate definitions. I think they limit our understanding of what sin really is, that there's actually a problem that exists in, in this uh, globe. There is a problem that exists around the world. One of the things that I, I've really uh, reflected upon is that I've had the chance to travel to many different countries, many different cultures. Can I tell you what they all have in common? A single one of them ever argue with you that there's a problem. They may not use the word sin. You can go anywhere. Pick your country. Pick your culture. Ask them if they know what it means to suffer. Ask them if they know what it means to have pain. If they've seen injustice. They've seen brokenness. Everywhere on this planet, people are aware that there is a problem. Something needs to be done about it. Now what the scriptures are going to say is that that brokenness, that problem of sin is a manifestation of our rebellion. This moment where we turned our backs on God and refused to acknowledge him as God. And as a result, there is a consequence for that choice. So in the same way that my children will make bad choices and decisions, I will say, listen, if you do that, there's going to be a consequence for that action. Something has to be done if you make that decision. Scriptures are clear that God did the same to us. He said, listen, if you eat of that fruit, if you rebel against me, you will surely die. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. So the reality is, is no matter where you are on this planet, we are all marching steadily one step at a time towards death. This is the reality of this earthly kingdom. That is the problem. And so the only way that we can escape that problem, the only way that we can find for forgiveness is if that penalty of death is paid. And so what Paul is saying here is that Christ came and actually took on that penalty for you and me. Isaiah is going to say the punishment that brings us peace is upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And so it's more than just the fact that Jesus suffered. It's more than the fact that he was a good teacher or that he was persecuted and mocked and beaten and flogged, but that ultimately he hung on a cross for you and me and he was put in a tomb. There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. It doesn't stop there, does it? Oh, because then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And Paul says he, on the third day, is coming to new life. And what we see is that this good news, this gospel, is so much more than just paying the penalty of death. It is conquering the grave. That even the grave itself could not keep its hold on him. And if we want to question that, Paul's saying, it is certain He's appeared to many, many people, up to 500 different people that are alive. You can go ask them and see that this is real. And what we begin to discover with this good news is that God loved us so much, he would give his only son, that if we would just believe in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. This is good news. So how do we receive it? How does it become ours? He uses this very powerful and important word, grace. I didn't deserve it. I was the least of all these. And it was God's grace that was afforded to me. His grace by which he has found me. It is by grace that I am who I am. What we see is that this gospel is nothing we earn. It's nothing that we achieve on our own doing. Free gift. God's love. Yet importantly, what Paul says here is that this grace is not without effect. This grace changes us. There's a transforming power that occurs with the gospel. 
It doesn't leave us as we are. We are brought to new life. The old is gone and the new has come. Grace has a certain power that we get to experience, that we don't just live for the kingdom that is to come. We live for this world and find life even abundantly here and now because this grace is transforming. Powerful, powerful message of the gospel. And so this is what Paul is reminding us of. Now, all that said, our response need to look like. This is where I really want us to spend a little bit more time this morning. Love how he introduces this subject. What he says is, let me remind you of this gospel. Let me remind you what I preached to you, what it is you received, and what it is that you've taken your stand on. This gospel has saved you only if you hold firm to it. Otherwise, believed in vain. What we see here with the introduction of this gospel message is a reminder We are not to respond haphazardly or casually, that we are actually called to take a stand on this message. Hold firmly to this message. We work hard for this message, and there is risk involved. There's a chance that if we loosen our grip, our faith, our belief is vanity, empty, meaningless. So we need to consider that not just from a personal standpoint. I want us to spend some time reflecting on it this morning in view of the church. What does it mean for the church Center to stand on this gospel? What, what risk do we need to consider? What can distort this message and make us lose our grip on the gospel? Several things, but let me offer a few suggestions this morning. This is where I think the problems emerge for churches, what we need to guard against if we're going to be a gospel-centered church. It kind of starts with our love for the things that are tangible. Right? We, we like to do things, and, and we like to point to things that we're doing. And so we'll take a stand as a church, and we'll stand for programs, we'll stand for events, we'll stand for causes, we'll stand for facilities, we'll stand for uh, programs and activities, we'll, we'll stand for notoriety, popularity, we'll stand for a lot of different things, because we like to be able to point to something. Say, look at this, look at what we've done. If we're not careful, all of that uh, effort and all of that attention, we can sometimes lose the essence of the gospel while we stand for it. Here's how that happens. Slowly but surely, we, we begin to take the gospel out of what we do. All of a sudden, we'll gather together and we'll sing songs. Our songs will be more about our feelings and our emotions and our musical preference. They will stir us the power of the gospel. We'll take the gospel out of our preaching, out of our teaching. And we'll spend time together talking more about self-help topics and things that can improve our morality all of a sudden, we reduce the gospel to a 30-second reference during an invitation or a simple blurb that we put on a piece of paper. Slowly but surely, lose the gospel in what we do. It becomes common, not almost anticipated, that we can actually come to church, be involved in church, and never truly encounter the power of the gospel. Why is that? What causes that? I would suggest there are several things, but let me highlight one that I think we need to be aware of that can be a struggle. I think one of the main things that prevents us from encountering the, the fullness of the gospel and taking our stand on it is doubt. I think we struggle with doubt. Now, what I don't mean is that we doubt, does God exist? I'm not saying that we even doubt Jesus' story, that he existed and that he died and was buried and even raised a new life. I don't think we doubt the story of the gospel. I think we doubt the power of the gospel. I think that's where we struggle. It starts in a couple different ways, correct? That we all of a sudden start to question the capacity the gospel really brings for change. See, we live in a world that's going to tell us over and over again, I can't change, even if I wanted to. I'm born this way. 
I'm not talking about a specific issue or lifestyle. I'm just saying in general, our approach to life, sometimes we fall into this mentality of thinking, we just are who we are. This is how God made me. These are my struggles. These are my faults. These are my difficulties. I just don't know that I can really change who I am. And we begin to question change in other people. It's just who they are. Just think that way. They just act that way. There's nothing we can really do about it. And ultimately what we're doing is questioning the power of the gospel. And so we will convene together and we'll talk about Jesus and we'll talk about heaven. We'll talk about salvation and we'll say, come, come just as you are. Stay that way. We begin to preach a gospel without repentance. We forget that the essence of the gospel is not live before you die. The essence of the gospel is come and die so that you might live. It is a daily journey of dying to self. So we become questioning. We doubt the capacity for change, but not just in our own lives, but in the world. We'll come face to face with the atrocities of this planet. We'll encounter this darkness. We'll begin to wonder, can anything really be done? We'll consider poverty or homelessness or war or, or human trafficking or the refugee crisis. Pick an issue. We'll be so overwhelmed by it, we'll think too small. We'll say, well, maybe if we just do a little bit here and there, maybe that's enough. And we begin to walk with a certain posture that many times feels like the darkness is overwhelming the light rather than the light overwhelming the darkness. We forget that the gospel is Jesus Christ, that he has been given the name that is above every name, every ruler, every authority, every dominion in this age and in the age to come, that the gospel is filled with power. We don't survive the darkness, we fight it. It's the other thing that we sometimes forget to do, right? That we actually sometimes reduce our uh, response to the gospel to volunteerism, right? We take the adventure out of the gospel. And so people encounter it. And what do we say as churches? Good, join a church. Go to a Bible study. Involved. Attend some things. Go on a committee. And those are all good things. If that's the fullness of our expression of the gospel, we have missed it. We rob it of its power. So what does it look like for us to stand up for it? What does it look like for us to hold fast to it, to actually work hard for it, and tirelessly labor for this good news? A few things that I would say for us this morning is that when we convene, I'm not, I'm not going to be an extremist. I'm not saying we just have to get rid of all these things, no more buildings, no more committees. That second one may get an amen, but that's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm, I'm a realist. I understand those things help us function. What I'm saying is, is that if we're not careful, we can drift away from the very cause that we've been tasked to do. At the end of the day, everything that we are has to be centered on the gospel. Our guiding question, when we convene together, when we cultivate ministry, when we go out into this world, has to be this. Does this exalt the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we have to do. That's how we begin to focus ourselves. So here's what I want you to know. Some assurances for us. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet for this church. That's what this journey is going to be about. We're going to let God shape that vision for us. But can I assure you, when we convene together in this church, in this congregation, if you ever bring somebody here that actually has never had the chance to hear the story of Jesus, let me affirm for you and convene, convince you or assure you that without a doubt, if you come to this church, you're going to hear the power of the gospel. Let me tell you another thing. The expectation will be that if you're going to be a member here, it's going to be your church, your church home. Our challenge is that we're going to walk through this life wherever God leads us. 
to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our families, to our workplaces, to our schools, no matter what life stage, and we are going to declare the power of the gospel. That's who we're going to be. It is going to be what governs everything that we do in this church. Here's how I want to close this message, okay? Again, we might yearn for the tangible expressions of what that will look like. Those things will come. I don't talk so much about the tangible expression as I do the posture. I, I'm always convicted. When I read these scriptures, these, these moments where Paul says, you know, I don't come to you with eloquent words and persuasive speech. I come with you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. <laughs> it be so for you and me. So I was thinking about how that revealed itself in Paul's life, his posture that he carried. And I loved this, this encounter that he had with this church in Corinth. It's really neat that we can pick up in chapter 15 and hear Paul write, Hey, you, remind, you remember when I preached to you? Remember when I told you about this? And then you can just turn a few pages backwards and go to Acts 18 and actually see the story that he's talking about. Actually see that moment where he went to Corinth and, and preached this message. I'm going to paraphrase for you that exchange because to me it's kind of the concluding word for us this morning. So he shows up in Corinth. The scriptures tell us that every Sabbath he was reasoning in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. He was exclusively devoted to the preaching and testifying that Jesus was the Messiah. It was his focus. This was his one cause. This is what he stood upon. This is what he held fast to was to reveal this messianic secret. And so how do you think it was received? Think they just stood up and applauded him? Think it was easy? You think he was well-liked? No, immediately the scriptures tell us it was met with full opposition. And yet Paul did not relent. He never gave up. He held fast to it despite the opposition that he encountered. And one of the reasons why is because in the midst of that exchange, God shows up in a vision and tells Paul, he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I have many people in this city. And I love that. So for you and me, what's our posture? What I want our posture to be is not so much the things that we can create but the manner in which we believe this gospel is real, it is powerful, it elicits change. We will stand up for it. We will hold fast to it. We will work tirelessly for it because our word that we heard Paul receive so many thousands of years ago is true for you and me today. That yes, this will be dangerous. Following the gospel takes us to uncomfortable places. There are risks involved. We don't just survive the darkness, we confront it. And while that may seem scary, let me remind you this morning that God is calling you close and saying, don't be afraid. I am with you. Keep on speaking. Never be silent. The church that we need to be. See, part of my conviction is what we have God saying to Paul. There are many people in this city. Harvest is plentiful. Why does it work? If you and I can center ourselves on this message and carry ourselves in such a fashion I believe God will just erupt within our midst. Hearts and souls will be awakened. It won't be any sort of service that we create or any sort of program that we manufactured. It'll be a demonstration of the Spirit's power because we have built ourselves on this message. We have stood for this gospel. We held firm to it, worked tirelessly for it because we know that the church is never to be silent. Gospel is good news. Let's pray accordingly. Father, we love you. We long to be defined by this story of Jesus. Father, not just an understanding of what he has done, the fullness of his power. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we minimize what you can do. 
manner in which we go through this life thinking that certain things can't be changed, certain things can't be redeemed and restored, wake in a, a song within us, rest upon the power of Jesus. Our church be known as a church that is committed fearlessly to this good news. Father, we love you, grateful for this grace, and have its effect on us that change us as we seek to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we conclude our time together this morning, I'd like to offer a word of invitation. As I said earlier, gospel demands a response. And so I don't know all of your histories, I don't know all of your stories, and so perhaps if this is new for you, you've never really stepped out in faith to respond to this gospel, do it today. You can make that decision public, you can come forward, we'll celebrate that with you. Same time, there are other things that God prompts us to do, other things that he stirs within us. Could be that you wanna join this church, could be that you're facing certain obstacles and you need that strength of prayer so you can come forward. We'll pray for you. But whatever God's asking you to do, let us respond in faith and obedience. Why don't you stand together as we celebrate? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outboard, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. Good morning. I'm waiting for the slide. Somebody get the dates wrong? Okay, there we go. Um, my name is Clay Ryan. I'm here to talk to you about our Guatemala mission trip. Uh, this year, 2017, will mark the sixth year that we have traveled to San Ramundo, Guatemala to build a home for a family in desperate, desperate need. 
Um, and I know many of you have heard about it. You've talked to people. You've seen the passion, the lives changed, both on the videos and here, those of us that have been able to go. And so if the Spirit is moving in you um, to even consider going with us this year, um, we have moved our trip to June this year, June 11th through 17th. I knew I'd get it wrong if I had to go by memory. Um, if you have any interest at all, we are inviting you to join us two weeks from today, uh, Sunday the 22nd, immediately after church in Harris Hall. We're going to have lunch. Lunch is on us. Um, and we're going to give you all the information that you need uh, to help you make the decision about whether or not God is calling you to go to Guatemala with us. So even if you have gone in the past, I mean, there are some of us who have gone uh, every year, have gone through three or four years. Even if you've gone in the past and you know the routine, come have lunch with us. Uh, share your story with those who are still questioning whether or not they want to go. Uh, so in the past, the most that we've ever taken from UBC is 26 people. This year we've taken a step of faith and we've reserved um, seats on the flights for 40 people. And we know that God is going to be able to provide for that. And our hope is that we, uh, as, a, as UBC, people of UBC, we're going to build two houses this year, not just one. Um, so please join us in two weeks. We'll answer all your questions. Uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Hey, I'm Caroline Poe, and we are thrilled that you have been a part of UBC today. And you know, one of the things that are essential to us, evangelism, missions, and you know what, discipleship, for us to grow as individuals in our faith. And um, starting next week, we'll have a number of discipleship opportunities. But this Wednesday, we are going to have a preview for financial peace. I've had the opportunity to go through financial peace for three times, and to be really honest, I'm thinking I probably need to go through again. How we care for our money is a big show of how we're accountable with those things God gives us and how much we remember that they really come from Him. Let's watch a video on it. What would happen if the people of God started handling money God's ways? You work too to get to the end of your life and have nothing to show for it. This is my family's legacy that I'm talking about here. I've got to have a plan and be focused. That knowledge that you pass down to your kids, that is how you change a family tree. You change your life when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you have that moment where you say, I've had it! I'm not going to live like this anymore! Preview of the FBU class will be this Wednesday and it will officially start the following Wednesday. If, if you haven't gone through it, it's phenomenal. And the younger you are, the more important it is that you go through it. Boy, if you're like 19 or 20, you're at the perfect age to go through financial peace. And then I want to tell you about another a discipleship class. It's called I Am In. It's a discipleship class put together by the Voice of the Martyrs. And um, I was really apprehensive when I looked at it. But I think the reason I was apprehensive is because it was scary to me because it talked about sacrifice. It talked about things that missionaries do on a regular basis that I'm scared to do once a month. It talked about the way that they live, the way that they pray, the way that they're transformed because of their faith, because of their belief in um, salvation and in Christ. 
and it shows a lot about what I would like to be like as well. So um, look on your worship guide. There's a number of discipleship op opportunities. I'm going to let you guys watch this IMN video, and then we're going to have some new church members to introduce you to. David C. Cook and the Voice of the Martyrs present the powerful new book, IMN, new and captivating stories of 50 persecuted Christians who have faced Islamic extremist groups like ISIS head on. The other side of these stories of terror are the incredible stories of the strength, the courage, and the faithfulness of the Christians who faced the persecution themselves. It's a golden time to church, because in that time we are showing really the light face of Jesus. And out of those 4,000 4, people, I saw it, 3,000 of them stood up and prayed the salvation prayer, like they, they, they gave their life to Jesus. We have lost everything, but we gained Christ. And that gave us a joy. Read the stories. When you do, you'll be challenged and changed by true stories of tremendous sacrifice, great courage, unexplainable joy, enduring perseverance, Christ-like forgiveness, and unshakable faithfulness. The Voice of the Martyrs has been serving persecuted Christians since 1967, and today is active in 68 countries around the world. Their motto, I will not let them suffer in silence. I will not let them serve alone. All right, good deal. So many opportunities for you to come and see what God is doing in the life of this church, things that can hopefully inspire us and encourage us to pursue this gospel in a passionate way and to see its power revealed in our life. A couple of things that we want to celebrate this morning before we go. I'd like to invite Dot Hart to come up and stand with me. It's coming to announce that she would love to make this her church home. She's been a member at, was it Lakeside? Is that what it was? Lakeshore. Lakeshore. And she's going to be transferring her letter to University Baptist Church. And so we're excited to receive her in accordance to that decision. And so at the conclusion of the service, I'd love for you to make your way forward and, and welcome, your, uh, welcome her, introduce yourself as we celebrate that decision with you. are so glad to have you, Dot. It's time. Davis, come on up, buddy. And I'm going to ask that the Reigns family, the rest of you, come up and stand with him. I'm going to celebrate with Davis today. Davis has decided to embrace this powerful message of the gospel and declare Jesus as Lord. Amen? Amen. It's awesome. Awesome. We're excited for you, Davis. Those applause are for you, buddy, in this decision. I didn't feel that too much. <laughs> I love it. So I'm going to ask Davis for you to stand here as well so that if you guys can make your way forward and celebrate this decision and once again just marvel at what God is doing in the life of this church. So we're excited. We want to celebrate today. So why don't you stand as we begin to dismiss ourselves with this sending song, okay? We will sing, sing, sing and make music with the heavens we will sing 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 grateful that you hear us when we shout your praise lift high the name of jesus man be blessed today